millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The following episode comes from a listener request by Bill S. for his monthly contribution to the Somewhere in the Skies Patreon campaign. If you would like to decide on a certain guest or topic that I cover here on the show, consider becoming a Patreon subscriber today. To learn more and to contribute, visit patreon.com backslash somewhere skies. And now, on with the show. This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague. Welcome to Somewhere in the Skies. I'm your host, Ryan Sprague. There are many accounts of alien abduction that have littered the tabloids, big and small screens, and hundreds of books for decades now. Some appear to be completely fabricated or just couldn't stand the test of scientific or psychological rigor. But there are those rare cases that truly leave even the most skeptical of minds utterly baffled. Today, I cover an abduction case that has stood the test of time and remains one of the most interesting and credible accounts to date. This is the incredible story of Betty Andreessen and the Andreessen Affair. In the city of South Ashburnham, Massachusetts, on the night of January 25, 1967, one of the most celebrated cases of UFO abduction began. Betty Andreessen was working in her kitchen while her seven children, mother, and father were in the living room. Shortly after 6.30 p.m., the lights in the house briefly blinked. Immediately thereafter, a reddish light began to beam through the kitchen window. The sudden darkness in the house set the kids' nerves on edge, and Betty ran to comfort them. Her father ran into the kitchen to peer out the window and find the source of the unusual light. To his utter shock, he saw five odd-looking beings coming towards the house with a hopping motion. Before he could regain his composure, he saw the beings walk right through the wooden door. What happened next would test the imagination and strength of even an open-minded, adventurous person. The entire family was suddenly put into a state of suspended animation. One of the creatures went to Betty's father, while one of the other four began to make telepathic communication with Betty. He was about five feet tall. The other four appeared to be around a foot shorter. All of the beings had a pear-shaped head with wide eyes and small ears and noses. Their mouths were only slits and never moved, though they were able to communicate through their minds. The beings wore a type of coverall, blue in color, with a wide belt. There also was a logo of a bird on their sleeves. 
The hands had only three fingers, and they wore boots. The creatures did not move as a human, but floated as they went. Betty would later recall, though she was frightened, that she felt a sense of calm, even friendship, towards the beings. The creatures were holding Betty's children in a frozen state of consciousness, but when Betty showed concern for them, they released her 11-year-old daughter to assure her that the children were not being harmed. Betty was taken by the creatures outside to a waiting craft which rested on the side of a sloping backyard. The craft was estimated to be about 20 feet in diameter in the classic UFO shape of a saucer. Betty believes that after she was aboard the craft, it joined a mothership where she underwent a physical examination and also was subjected to the effects of strange equipment. After this, she was given a type of bizarre test which caused her pain at first but resulted in a kind of religious experience. Here's an actual sound clip of Betty during an interview stating what happened during the examination. What did they do after they had examined you? Well, after they had examined me, they uh, took me back to the cubicle where they told me to change into my regular clothes. And from there, I was escorted um, into this room that appeared like a Quonset uh, hut-type room, half cylindrical. And within it were eight glass-like chairs. And they sat me down in the uh, one of the chairs to the right, and um, this hood, glass-like hood, came down, and I could hear it click around me, and then I felt very cold, as if I was freezing, and it seemed as if I was there for a very long time. And from there, I was taken and uh, put into another chair to the left, and again, this glass-like hood came down and sealed around me, and I could hear the snap, and they also put some tubes in my nose, and I could hear it, uh, as they put them into the glass, I could hear it seal-like, and um, also a tube for my mouth, and they told me to keep my eyes closed, and uh, they gave me this reddish uh, color uh, liquid to uh, take, and it tasted very sweet, I felt very relaxed from it, and meanwhile, this uh, gray liquid um, fell down, you know, was falling on my head, and it was filling up in the bottom of the chair, and... Um, when it was filled, uh, it vibrated like a whirlpool around about me. And uh, from there, um, they drained that out, took the breathing tubes out, and uh, um, set me on this track where one being was in front of me and one being was in back of me. And at this point, they had their different uh, uniform. It was a, a sort of a, a shiny aluminum-type uh, uniform. And they put two black hoods on their heads. And we went out of this room into a very dark black tunnel. It seemed as if it was chipped out of stone. And there were other entrances, I could tell, because their uniform uh, sent off like a bright light. Uh, and I could see like darker holes off to the sides. And um, Did you start thinking that maybe these weren't angels after all at this point? I, I, I didn't know what it was. I really didn't but know. The term was. alien still didn't no, cross your mind. I wasn't... Yeah. You, know, you weren't in that frame of mind, obviously. No, I yeah. wasn't aware of, of UFOs, mm -hmm. you know. Approximately four hours later, she was returned to her home by two of the captors. When she arrived, her entire family was still in a state of suspended animation. One of the creatures had stayed in her house, evidently to watch the other family members. After releasing the family from the trans-like state, the creatures left. Betty would later state that the aliens had hypnotized her to not recall any of her experience until a designated time to be determined later. 
She was able to recall only certain things at a time of her experience. The red light through the kitchen window and the beings entering the house being two of them. Before this bizarre happening, Betty had little or no knowledge of UFO folklore, and being a devoted Christian, she believed that the abduction had had a religious meaning. It wouldn't be later until she began to view the abduction as alien in nature. Eight years later, Betty answered an ad from Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who was soliciting abduction experiences from the general public. Her letter was dismissed at the time, because of its unusual details, and it would be January 1977 when her story would finally be fully investigated. The investigative team assigned to the Andreasen case included a solar physicist, an electronics engineer, an aerospace engineer, a telecommunications specialist, and a UFO investigator. The service of hypnotist and a medical doctor trained in psychiatry were also used. Betty's case involved 12 months of investigation. Betty was given a character reference check, two lie detector tests, a psychiatric review, and an excruciating 14 sessions of regressive hypnosis. Small sound bites of the hypnosis sessions have been released to the public. Here is a small portion of one of them. Now I must warn you, this may be a little disturbing. Results of the Andreasen abduction case were startling. Betty, along with her daughter, relived a detailed account of their experience, agreeing on all the basic aspects. These results were eventually published in book form by renowned author and investigator Raymond Fowler. Fowler joined the U.S. Air Force in 1952, attended a special school for electronic espionage, after which he was assigned to the USAF Security Service under the auspices of the NSA. His civilian career included work on U.S. government projects, including the Minuteman Project weapon system. Later in life, he became very interested in the UFO phenomenon and would subsequently serve as Director of Scientific Investigations for MUFON and also as a scientific associate for the Center for UFO Studies. He is internationally known as a highly competent investigator and a trustworthy chronicler. In fact, J. Allen Hynek, who developed the Hynek UFO classification system, recognized Fowler as one of the most outstanding investigators in the UFO field, stating that he personally knew of no other investigator more dedicated, trustworthy, or persevering as Fowler. 
in an interview about the case and about his book, The Andreessen Affair, Fowler had this to say. I'm probably acknowledged as probably one of the most objective uh, investigators in the United States, and I think my uh, buddies who saw me produce this book wondered if uh, I had uh, lost all sense of objectivity. And I'm really going on a limb, really, as far as my reputation goes, in, in bringing this, uh, this book, The Andreessen Affair, out. Uh, as I mentioned before, we decided this was... Uh, too strange to have just one person investigate it. We had a team of five, and most of this team of five are engaged in scientific research and engineering research uh, within the civilian, civilian scientific community and are really objective people. All five investigators in their initial individual evaluations in this 528-page report indicated that they believe that the Andreasen affair uh, involved people who were telling the truth, who knew it to be, and that there was a real experience there. It was a sign that something really is happening to these people, especially since uh, other cases exist similar to this. If this was just a unique case, I wouldn't be interested. But you did not go all the way to the point, or all, all the investigators who are saying that, yes, Betty Andreessen and Becky Andreessen did have a close encounter of the third type, of the third kind. Yes, whatever that is, is a close encounter of the third kind type G. Now, the apparent stimulus for something like that is obviously extraterrestrial, but to accept the extraterrestrial hypothesis without physical proof would be non-scientific. Now, the Andreessen Affair remains one of the best-selling UFO abduction books of all time. And Fowler remains one of the most credible abduction researchers as well. This case is still being investigated today and remains one of the most controversial, bizarre, but genuine abduction cases of all time. But I wanted to hear from you guys about what you think of this case and just exactly what happened to Betty and her children on that bizarre night. Rob had this to say, quote, Betty's case is fascinating because it doesn't fit the normal mold of an abduction case. There were multiple eyewitnesses involved in the home while they took Betty on board the craft. The daughter was able to relive it through hypnosis, as well as Betty. This case has been heavily investigated, and still is, and it has not yet been dismissed. Kate had this to say, quote, We have much the aliens want. Our soul, love, many things. We are worth something, or they would just dump us all into the ocean. A very famous experiencer once advised me not to do hypnosis. You don't want to remember that stuff. Once you become a famous experiencer, you are subject to ridicule and rejection from the public in general. Take a look at several experiencers and how they are treated by the UFO world in general. Prove it, and they spend their lives proving it and under attack constantly. David had this to say, quote, The Andreasen case is one of the most important abduction cases, thanks in large part to Raymond Fowler's detailed investigation. It established that there is a link between alien abduction and out-of-body or near-death experiences, and that the aliens are quite familiar with the out-of-body realm, that their technology may actually operate on, quote, both sides of the veil. Tim says, quote, Betty's case is hugely important. To my mind, it calls to question the realist or the physicalist view of reality itself, which is itself a metaphysical assumption or starting point rather than the settled science the mainstream culture would have us believe. 
But in terms of that settled science, some are a bit more skeptical, I would say with good reason. Sean had this to say, quote, You need to ask why. Why would they pass through a door yet need surgical instruments to perform experiments in terms of these creatures? As a scientist, I always ask why before I even ponder if something did happen. Why would aliens, who are apparently trying to be incognito, light up their ships like a Goodyear blimp at a football game? Why pass through doors when they can just open them? Why freeze people in place when they could just sedate them? If it doesn't make sense, it probably didn't happen that way. And then we have the words of Tristan in an article from BizarreAndGrotesque.com. Tristan has this to say, quote, Betty's description of her abductors is strange and inconsistent. Over the years, Betty went from describing the alien's eyes as white with pupils to being entirely black like the aliens in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The uniforms the aliens wore also don't make much sense. According to Betty, they wore heavy boots. But what would have been the point since the aliens apparently floated everywhere? Furthermore, hypnosis sessions and recovered memories are notoriously unreliable. It should not be taken as serious proof that an abduction actually happened. Tristan also says that, quote, In February of 2007, Betty and Bob Luca's son, Robert Jr., announced that the Andreasen affair was a hoax. In a 2,000-word email, Robert Jr. claimed that his father was a compulsive liar who had a drinking problem. According to Robert Jr., Betty had been experiencing emotional shock because her two sons had earlier died in a car accident. After meeting her second husband, Betty would write about every dream she had, as though it were an abduction, and Bob encouraged her and even manipulated investigators into believing the story. <sighs> so there's clearly more to this entire Andreasen affair than meets the eye. But I wanted to hear what someone who researched the alien abduction phenomenon with clear and objective approaches, having even worked side by side for many years with claimed abduction researcher Bud Hopkins. So now, to give us a bit more insight and his personal thoughts on the case. Here is my mentor and our special guest, Peter Robbins. Thank you for joining me today on Somewhere in the Skies to talk about this. Glad to, Ryan. So I guess let's start with what what sort of knowledge do you have of this case, Peter? I know that it is from the peripheral, as it were, but this is one of the more fascinating cases. And you've been a part of some extremely fascinating abduction cases, having worked with Bud Hopkins as well. But in terms of the Andreasen affair, where does this case land, in your opinion? Very high up. One thing um, that we need to uh, take stock of here is where this case to use the most dispassionate term possible for life-changing human affairs, to put it mildly, where it sits in the history of ufology. It was in 1967 that Betty Andreasen had the experience that ultimately became the core of the case. But she didn't contact anybody about it for another eight years. It wasn't until 1975 that she wrote a letter to the best-known person in the world regarding UFOs at the time, Dr. Alan Hynek. And Hynek, who I'm sure had a very busy schedule, 
demurred in that he simply put the letter aside, like many letters, and not unlike memories of, of working with Bud over the years when something didn't really seem to be a priority. Also in 1975, the whole study of abductions per se was in its infancy. The general attitude of uh, the UFO research community internationally, uh, as far as I'm concerned, was lights in the night sky, radar returns, physical traces, doing all you could at best to appear like a responsible grown-up because any responsible grown-up who uh, claimed to have a serious interest in UFOs was already setting themselves up as something of a social oxymoron. And Heineck understood that there was ridicule attached to this factor. If one started talking about the beings in start inside of the craft, there was fuel for ridicule. And as Dave Jacobs once said to me, and I'm paraphrasing here, all of our attention was focused on the cars and none on the drivers. The fact is, this book came out in 1979, a full two years before Bud Hopkins' missing time, which puts it in a very special place. Also, it was researched, as um, Dr. Hynek tells us, by one of the original research team members that worked with him when he returned his attention to that letter and realized this had potential tremendous importance. He asked Fowler, uh, Raymond Fowler, if he would lead the investigation. Fowler did a brilliant job, and his name is a very important one in UFO studies. If your entry level and trying to familiarize yourself with the literature or have a particular interest in the subject of abductions, Raymond Fowler, who is still very much with us but retired from the work, was a such a careful, analytical, scientific, uh, pragmatic researcher in the way that he progressed in his work. At the same time, we learn years after the fact because he keeps writing. There is the Andreasen Affair, the Andreasen Affair Part Two, um, the Andreasen Legacy, and then a more general book on abductions inspired by the Andreasen studies um, called The Watchers. He lays out for us in very analytical terms why he takes this case so seriously and runs it through uh, rigorous testing. In fact, one of the things that caught me off guard was leading up to his uh, stupendous research on the Andreasen incidents, because there are many of them. Dr. Hynek and his team did an exhaustive investigation of Betty Andreasen's claims, interviewing uh, family members. Uh, her husband, Bob, had had a, uh, an experience when he was young and one later in life. Um, uh, her daughter, their daughter, Becky, um, had had experiences with her mom. And they looked at everything. The um, psychiatric examinations, um, stress analysis, checks on her character, analysis of the weather reports of the days that she said the weather was such and such, and um, supporting testimony of other observers. It turned out to be a 528-page single-space report. I mean, the initial investigation um, before Fowler began to focus in on it for years is really worth a great deal of respect. Also, again, this is 1979. Now, in general UFO studies, the abduction subject is taken very seriously. In, I guess, in a way, UFO counterculture, there's a strong trend, which I understand, to look at things from more a, um, a Jacques Vallée uh, pioneered point of view or mm -hmm. 
the more anomalous aspects of, of the theories of what UFOs are and the intelligences behind them. Ultimately, um, Fowler in his work has no weird. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. To go except to marry and to a degree the world of, of hard UFOs, so to say, uh, and the world of parapsychology and the confirmed and reconfirmed and reconfirmed facts that in the Andreasen and other uh, significant cases, those two aspects of individuals' lives often intertwine. And I wanted to read just one quick quote from the introduction to the Andreasen affair, only because now it seems so passe, but at that time, even for a figure as respected as Alan Hynek, I, I think it took great courage to say, um, which is okay, a former book by Mr. Fowler, UFOs Interplanetary Visitors, upholds this more popular concept of UFOs, and many of the cases he describes tend to give strong support to that hypothesis. But here we have creatures of light who find walls no obstacle to free passage into rooms and who find no difficulty in exerting uncanny control over the witnesses' minds. If this represents an advanced technology, then it must incorporate the paranormal just as our own incorporates transistors and computers, end quote. He says, in short, that they have mastered the puzzle of mind over matter. Mm -hmm. And again, that was kind of re-shook me up when I uh, was just preparing for this interview, how different the times were. From here, Fowler and his team go on to document a brilliantly analyzed and researched life history. We also find that the watchers, the beings, uh, as Betty uh, describes them, have an agenda. 
that although their interactions are often very frightening to her, they have a message for humanity. It's not unlike certain biblical messages or contactee messages. We're messing up. We need help. And we're not giving it to ourselves. There's a fair amount of what I would call channeling involved, a great deal of regressive hypnosis that seems extremely responsible and well done. But it's quite an epic. And if you superimpose upon it a book from um, almost 10 years later, um, uh, Bud Hopkins Intruders from 1987 uh, about Debbie Jordan, Debbie Jordan Cabell's um, experience, you see almost template other important cases and analysis of, of claims of abductees have followed, of course. But I give a great deal of credit to Fowler. And I, I can't say I know Betty. Um, we've met a number of times and have a, a very cordial acquaintanceship. I was scheduled to see her last month, but a health problem uh, caused her to have to cancel out of the conference that she's going to speak at. Uh, so I am looking forward to seeing her again. I know that she and Bob have their own book out now, which uh, I am sure will add to uh, the important contactee and abductee literature that we have available to us. One of the things I wanted to touch on a little bit, Peter, is that, that idea of the paranormal. You know, I know that you personally worked with Bud on a case where a woman was literally floated out of a solid wall, out of a window, and onto a craft. Now, we have this claim by Betty that her family, when she was in her house and being taken, that they were left in a suspended animation, uh, that they all were just frozen, and that one of the creatures actually stayed behind to watch after them. So this mm. whole idea of the paranormal being involved within a UFO case really struck me. Um, this is yeah. why a lot of people consider this case very bizarre, and many people consider Linda's case, Linda Cortile, a very bizarre yeah. case as well. Um, do you see any sort of connecting or similar things between these two cases? Sure. Um, first, the obvious that these are two women who were repeatedly taken from their places of residence through solid walls or windows. In, in Linda's case, which is the subject of Bud Hopkins' 1996 book, uh, Witness the True Story of the Brooklyn Bridge UFO Abductions, it would be one thing if it was this woman's account on her own. And um, to add outrageousness that um, she lives in lower Manhattan, very close to the Brooklyn Bridge, and that the circular glowing UFO um, that she saw it, but nobody else happened to, even though it's two in the morning, it's Manhattan. That would be outrageous. Mm -hmm. The fact is that several other several dozen independent individuals who we were able to confirm were actual people observed that glowing disc over their building around lower Manhattan. Bud Hopkins being a well-known figure in UFO investigation at that time and a public person would be a likely person to receive correspondence on this. And this was a case that I worked with him for longer and uh, with a deeper involvement than any other event 
in the years that I was his assistant. In fact, it was six regular years. It was 89 that uh, he began his, began his investigation, and again, six years later that the book was published. When several dozen people write to you, you being Bud, and they say, were they making a movie? Uh, I saw it from the Brooklyn Bridge. I saw it from the West Side Highway. I saw it from the loading dock of the New York Post or wherever. And this is what they it looked like. During this investigation, one of the most exciting parts for me, and I think Bud in a very quiet, researchy way, is that many of these letters, all this again, you know, pre-internet, actual letters sent um, from different postal addresses with um, uh, different handwritings, etc. Most of them, or many of them, included drawings. Bud and I, being trained artists, found it doubly moving because normally a witness drawing, um, overwhelmingly, the chances are that it's done by an untrained hand. But one thing is almost certain. There's a great deal of intention in the drawing. If it's not, you know, um, beautifully rendered, it's done with great integrity and attention to detail. Sometimes things are labeled. In this case, there was a specific color sequence um, to these craft, to the craft, and every single drawing captured the shape and the color sequence from different locations in lower Manhattan. Again, this is what we call circumstantial evidence, but when added to a growing stack of very credible circumstantial evidence and then physical evidence, etc., you have the makings of a very important investigation. All abductees that I've spent time with are told things in their heads, some of them um, obviously willing to share them, many of them very much the same, seemingly word for word in certain cases. And I, I think that cuts across major abduction studies. If we wanted to dig and pick, I'm sure we could draw quite a number of parallels between Linda's case and Betty's case, for sure. Right. And another big aspect of Betty's case in particular, Peter, is this idea of spirituality playing a very yes. big role in this. Now, a lot of people, they know that Betty is very Christian, a very practicing uh, religious person, and that this played a big role in her perception of what happened to her. The being of light, you know, th this godly figure almost that she mm -hmm. believes gave her these messages. Now, mm -hmm. I'm sure you've come across this in your abduction research and working with abductees as well, that a lot of them do see this as either an angelic experience or something extremely spiritual. I know mm -hmm. I have come across several uh, experiencers who, who claim that even a UFO sighting was something angelic. Now, mm -hmm. what do you make of this whole aspect of Betty's case? As you said that last part, my first thought was a very important case, if you will, not so much for ufology, but for the Christian religion, is the famous miracle of Fatima. Yes. Um, these um, uneducated shepherd children who observed what they called a, a vision of the uh, Mother Mary, uh, Virgin Mary in the sky, has become a, a huge part of the miracles uh, of the Catholic Church from the early 20th century in this case. However, in the accounts very well documented of the time, when they're specifically asked to describe what that vision looked like, they don't describe the face of a beatific, beautiful, um, shrouded woman in the sky. They describe a huge glowing circle. I 
am of a mind after more than 40 years of looking at this subject from different angles that there are variables that we may never be able to pin down. We know as well as we can that they, these other particular intelligences, they have the power or the technology or the psychic abilities or whatever the mechanism is to put certain things in the minds of the human beings they interact with, either what they may be thinking, feeling, or seeing. Also, uh, and if that's so, then perhaps that is what they, these individuals are seeing, what we would call a screen memory, rather than what is actually in front of them, or what is actually in front of them. Mm -hmm. But then there's a third variable that some of our colleagues don't really take into consideration. I do for more than 20 odd years because I worked for years in crisis intervention and part of our training was to understand the physiology of human shock. And um, if you're looking at something that you absolutely cannot accept in a total shock situation, um, the mind is a powerful and in its own way wonderful thing and will mask that memory. Either it will become the repressed memory of your life or one of them, or it will emerge at a time that you can deal with it, either coaxed out or, or naturally uh, making itself apparent. So with those three understandings, number one, I'm damned if I know which one it is for Betty or which combination of them. What I do know is that in the case of Betty Andreessen, the person that I know a little and like very much, yes, she is a religious Christian, as is her husband, and they draw peace and comfort and positive aspects of their life from those deeply entrenched beliefs. I think in life, which can be tough enough, if something serves you, it's not necessary to push too hard and ask questions as to why or how, especially in the spiritual realm. God bless Betty and Bob. I, I know that they have been through tragedies in their life that would absolutely waste other people and um, that their belief in Jesus and, and the tenets that he taught um, have helped get them through and move on and live full lives. So I almost don't care. It's interesting because there was a time in my work that that was the driving force. Which of these things is it? Well, any of the above and all. And that's what we have here, uh, a situation where the paranormal, the hard reality of UFOs, um, traditional Christian beliefs come together in a matrix. It's important to note also that during the writing uh, of these two books, that in his investigative work with Dr. Hynek beforehand, Raymond Fowler never made public the fact that he did later in life, that he was an abductee, very much in the spirit that Kathleen Martin did not make that public earlier in life. I, I think they both understood innately that it would be a distraction. It would be something that naysayers and ankle biters would pick at and try to find meaning in. Also, Raymond Fowler is also a, a very um, Christian man. And I say that with a capital C and with all respect. And for me, part of my admiration for him as an investigative writer in a very complex subject, to put it mildly, is that his work straight through his career is completely analytical. It reminds me of one of the most important lessons I felt that was passed on to me by one of my three major mentors when I started, Colonel retired Coleman von Kavetsky, 
which as a Hungarian, I think 99% of whom are Catholics, Coleman went to church on Sunday. He practiced his religion religiously, but he had no patience for people having their uh, scientific UFO research informed by the kind of mysticism that he felt did not help us understand the nature of the subject that we were dealing with. Again, uh, if anything now, an even more complex subject with so many people looking at the whole UFO phenomena from a decidedly religious, quasi-religious sort of matrix. It is. It's an eternal struggle and battle, I believe, between science and religion that, Mm -hmm. again, if you have one of these experiences, it really is the lens in which you choose to perceive it, whatever you decide and choose to accept in your life as this is what happened to me. I would have to agree, Peter, that at this point in my research, I don't necessarily care one way or another. This is what Betty believes happened. That's the story she's going to tell. And it's up to the listener and the other experiencers to decide if they choose to believe that or not. The other small thing I did want to bring up in terms of this case is that one of the family members uh, came forward in the last few years or so claiming that they believe that this entire incident was a hoax perpetrated by Betty, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of family members coming forward and and making these claims, uh, what would you say to someone who is a severe skeptic and would believe that someone would make this entire thing up and spend the rest of their life talking about it? Like you mentioned, Betty went through a lot of hard times after this event happened. Mm. Uh, Family members were lost and whatnot. What do you make of the idea to the skeptics who say, nope, none of this? It's all complete bullshit. Well, um, for starters, if somebody has an intention to deceive and they come off as a a basically sincere person committed in every respect of behavior and language and pronouncements and um, working to make it seem the deception they want to perpetrate is actual, it's doable for whatever reasons it seems to be part of human nature that some people are intent on deceiving other people. And some people are very good at it. So let me put it this way, much as I like, respect, admire uh, Betty, if it could be proved to um, my satisfaction, which is fairly high standard, that this family member's allegation were true, I'd go, gosh, that's kind of sad. And um, it happens. It does not make other cases or uh, other individuals who have claimed similar things and had them backed up scientifically, etc. Wrong. It just means that this person wasn't telling the truth and was good at it and um, perpetrated a, a fraud. Yeah, those things happen. I, I think in ufology, they're well in the minority, but they certainly happen. I, I think that's a good point, too, is I spoke to a gentleman recently about being the first person to ever have witnessed the black-eyed children phenomenon. And he told me, you know, if if someone could come forward and tell me that they pulled a prank on me that day or that this was all, you know, part of some some elaborate hoax, he said, please do it. Please tell me, please prove to me that what I saw was not a genuine experience. And I will, I will accept that and I will move on. I think it's important that Betty has never claimed that 
oh, try to prove me wrong. Try to prove me wrong. She will say, if you can back up my case with scientific evidence, I hope you can. Um, but until then, this is what I believe happened to me. And that's what I'm going to continue to believe. And I, I think that's very important. So I would have to agree with you. Anyone who believes that this case is 100% a hoax, I highly suggest that they look at the work of Fowler and take the the opinions and the educated opinions by people like yourself and other abduction researchers that something definitely happened to Betty. What exactly that was, we may never know. But again, we deal with that every day with this topic. Yeah, I'm I'm remembering at this point, um, there's no hard statistic of um, how many of what type of beings abductees and experiencers report having seen or um, interfaced or had exchanges with. And if such a statistic alleged to exist, we would immediately have to question it as problematic because there's no way of actually knowing. Right. And maybe they'll never be. In the years I worked with Bud, I think we both agreed informally that of all the reports of beings, other intelligences, aliens, um, a word I've never been comfortable with in this realm, uh, etc., I don't know, three quarters, 80 percent of them maybe were in the uh, very much in the range of what we'll call an archetypical gray. Yeah. Um, also, it's interesting to note that in the Andreasen affair, the beings that we keep dealing with are these archetypical grays. But this book was written so long ago that that term didn't exist at the time. But the other 20 percent or quarter or so varied wildly. Once again, was this a function of a fact that there are a whole lot of them and they look really different and maybe a range of them fit into the immortally wonderful Star Wars uh, bar scene um, <laughs> or that they're, you know, pulsating bits of amoeba that have no uh, relationship or appearance uh, similarities to humanoids? Or is this something that is put in the minds of those involved by these intelligences for whatever reasons? Or is it informed by the physiology uh, and defensive aspects of human shock or some combination thereof? I am completely sure that I have no idea. <laughs> I could not agree with you more, my friend. And I think that's where I land on this case as well. It is fascinating. I have yeah. no idea yet what to make of it. I'm going to continue looking into it, as I'm sure all the listeners will. And I have to thank you for taking the time to come on and talk through this with me today. I, I value your educated opinion on this, as I'm sure the listeners will as well. I guess to end, do you have anything uh, coming up that you can let our listeners know about? It, right now, um, funny, um, here in the Northeast, where the seasonal change is very visual, as we have come into autumn, my schedule out there speaking in the world is now gone quiet for a while uh, after a, a fairly intense uh, late summer and early autumn. And so this is where I go back to um, finishing up the book that I have been working on for a while that will be out sometime next year, hopefully early next year, begin to look for speaking jobs also for next year, drafting out um, a project that I had in mind for some time, but need to complete this one on. And uh, the odd bits of weatherproofing and getting ready for uh, winter here in central New York. Nothing you can relate to, I'm sure. <laughs> I will tell you one thing, my friend. Adapting to the West Coast has been difficult, but I will not miss 
this coming winter. I can tell you that much. <laughs> Got it, man. Uh, with that, Peter, again, thank you for coming on Somewhere in the Skies today. My pleasure. And looking forward to uh, our paths crossing again next, wherever and whenever. Always, always. All right, that is it for this week's episode. I hope this episode served as a detailed overview of this hotly debated abduction case. Whether you believe, want to believe, or choose not to, I highly suggest checking out the work of Raymond Fowler on his investigation into Betty Andreessen's accounts. My thanks again to the listeners who shared their thoughts, and I'd still love to hear what you think of this case. Visit the website, somewhereintheskies.com, and use the contact tab. My thanks also to Peter Robbins. Anyone wanting to reach out to Peter, he is always available on Facebook. Just search for Peter Robbins. Again, check us out on Twitter, at Somewhere Skies, and on Instagram, at Somewhere Skies Pod. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes. Right now, if you do all three, I will send you an official Somewhere in the Skies sticker. And speaking of stickers, the Somewhere in the Skies store is open with all types of merchandise. Designed by loyal listener Eduardo Lobo. Go to tpublic.com and search for Somewhere in the Skies. Again, that's T-E-E-Public.com. Lastly, if you'd like to choose my topic, like Bill did today, or even choose my guests or be on the show yourself, these options are all available through the Patreon campaign. With your monthly support of the show, we can grow and become more of a community. To learn more, check out all of the rewards, and to become a patron, visit patreon.com backslash somewhere skies. Next week, we are tackling Hollywood and UFOs in a fascinating and entertaining ride with author and researcher Ravi Graham. Remember, keep your feet on the ground, but never stop searching somewhere in the skies. Somewhere in the Skies is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with Antica Productions and the Antica Podcast Network. To learn more, visit anticaproductions.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. 
Code PROGRAM.